Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Sean Pattenden. Truth, as we know, is stranger than fiction, but in this case, politics, fiction and truth collide. A Ukrainian comedian makes his name on national television, satirising the Ukrainian and Russian states. He goes on to become an actor and wins a lead role in a show called Servant of the People, where a teacher dreams of becoming a reforming president of the Ukraine and does so, rooting out deep corruption. Months later, the actor himself, in real life, Vladimir Zelensky, is running for president and in 2019 wins by a landslide majority. You couldn't make it up. But who is Zelensky? How does a celebrated actor go from TV set to election victory to dealing with an aggressor such as Putin and his military attack on Ukraine in 2022? Following the first anniversary of the Ukrainian invasion, we're here to find out. Stephen Dirks is a journalist at Dutch newspaper NRC, and from 2014 to 2020, he was NRC correspondent for Russia, Ukraine and Belarus. He is the author of the biography Zelensky, the first major biography of the Ukrainian leader written for a Western audience, and he joins me in the bunker today. Welcome, Stephen. Hello. Firstly, why write a biography of Zelensky? What is there that we don't know? Well, what we set out to do was not only write about the life of this very, very uh, interesting man, but also uh, tell the story of Ukraine, because I think uh, Ukraine is one of the countries in Europe which is least known to the public. People almost had no clue where it is on the map. So our book, I'm saying uh, our book because I wrote it with my partner, Marina Shokonova. Our book uh, sets out to to paint the picture of of a man who's now leading the war against Putin. But in the in the course of this uh, book, you also acquaint yourself with uh, what Ukraine is and what Ukrainian history is. And I think this, that this is uh, terribly important right now. Absolutely. Zelensky's background, as we know, is comedy. And as we've said, he's a Russian-speaking Ukrainian at first who takes part in TV talent shows in the 90s. What gave him his drive, do you think? To perform. To perform and to lead as such, which he does in the end, doesn't he, with his production company? Yeah, he's always been a leader, actually. Although we we, we see him as a, as, a, as a performer, as a cabaretier or maybe even a clown. But uh, uh, in his own circle of, of uh, comedians, he was always the leader. He was always uh, telling everybody what to do. So he has this kind of natural uh, charisma and, and, and he's, uh, he's just the boss everywhere he goes. His parents wanted him to become a lawyer, is that right? Yeah, they wanted him to become a lawyer. He himself thought about becoming a diplomat, which is particularly interesting in, in, in the conditions he finds himself in now. He actually wanted to study in Moscow at the Mgimo, which is a very famous elite university for uh, diplomats. There's actually the school uh, Lavrov, the Minister of Foreign Affairs of the Russian Federation, went to. So he wanted to study there as well, but he couldn't because of at the time, you had to have an awful lot of money to study there and bribe, bribe a few people along the way. <laughs> Quel surprise, as we say. How popular were the shows with the Ukrainian public when he started to become known on TV? Well, he, first he set out to be uh, uh, to perform on stage. So he was actually he started his career in uh, in a very particular kind of comedy competitions, which were very popular in the Soviet Union later in uh, in, in 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 the post-Soviet uh, societies in Russia in. Ukraine and Belarus. So he started, he launched his career through this kind of, these, these competitions uh, in which uh, you had to make jokes and had to be funny and beat the other team. Then he became um, a major comedian on, on uh, Ukrainian national television. And then he went on to also become a major star in Russia. 
So let's not forget that this is one of the most popular stars in Russia before Putin annexed uh, Crimea and invaded the Donbass in 2014. What I'm interested in is if he's popular in Russia and yet he's doing satire, how edgy was he allowed to be within his comedy? Is it what we call edgy with our sort of UK satire history or is it something slightly different? Well, if you look at uh, Ukrainian politics, he was absolutely scathing. You know, he did because Ukrainian society, we have to remember, was also before the war was completely different from Russian society. There is no centralized leadership. There are different political parties, different oligarchs, different spheres of influence. So there's a real political life. There's always been. So he did whatever he wanted. Actually, he he told he later on um, uh, told uh, reporters that he was called to the presidential office by the then President Yanukovych who uh, asked them to kind of uh, tune down a bit on the, on the criticism. Uh, uh, and when uh, Zelensky refused, he, uh, he offered to, to, to bribe him for $100 million, I believe. <laughs> a huge amount of money anyway, but uh, Zelensky refused. So, he, so the very interesting thing is that there, there, there was a, a kind of free speech in Ukraine before the war, and, and he was using it to the full effect. Mm-hmm. And even if Russian people were watching, yeah, because I think the show was quite Vicherny uh, Kotar was uh, it was called. I think it was it, it was it was quite popular in Russia as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he founds a production company called the Kavtal Ninety Five Studio, formed mm-hmm. in two thousand and three with his college friends. Again, what was his role? Was he very much a force of nature in getting this through? Yes, I think he was. Uh, let's say the intellectual. Uh, Dynamo of the of the whole company, but it was also the, the 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 financial manager. So he set up the company, and he was the one who was making all the money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now uh, it's obviously it's easy for us now to paint him as this satirical someone who's interested in politics. You know, someone who has a mission. But he's also starring in rom coms, I believe, at yes. this point as an actor. And even later on, he is the voice of Paddington in the Ukrainian dubbed version of the film. So he was willing to also, you know, be a jobbing actor as such. Is that true? Well, actually, I think one of his big dreams to become was to become a famous Hollywood actor <laughs> and to, to, to gain recognition because of his brilliant acting. And unfortunately, he never did anything beyond this kind of romantic comedies, as you've said, um, uh, which are actually uh, terrible to watch. <laughs> Um, uh, but yeah, he, he, uh, the interesting thing about him is that he's very much a man of the people. So the, if you look at his comedy shows, on the one hand, his jokes are political and they're very uh, almost intellectual. But on the other hand, it's not some kind of, well, if you talk about, for instance, Rowan Atkinson, no, it's not Blackadder, it's more like Mr. Bean. So he always <laughs> had a feeling for what, what, what the common man finds funny. So it's Servant of the People, as we mentioned, that's the real pivot point, at least in retrospect. What's happening here? Are people starting to connect these political convictions he might have, even as a fictional character, with someone who could actually oust the sitting president, which is Poroshenko at the time? Yeah, the interesting question is is whether he set up the series to launch himself as a future president or whether he started the, the series of uh, a history teacher uh, who by accident becomes the president and then goes on to to reform the whole uh, Ukrainian society, whether he was actually playing this president and thought, well, I'm, I might actually uh, be able to do this myself. So that's that's the question which hasn't been answered uh, until now. Uh, we unfortunately, we couldn't answer in the book. But yeah, that, that is one of the most interesting things about his career, that he actually played the man that he want, wanted to be, to, to become. So what is Ukraine like at this time? If we're talking about 2018, 2019, before the election, 
who's running the show and what influence or other influences might be people like oligarchs having on the government? Yes, well, the interesting thing is that um, uh, Zelensky uh, is now known as a war leader, but he wanted to be the president of peace because in 2018, 2019, Ukraine uh, is not fully at peace because there's still a war going on in the Donbass. It's a low-intensity conflict, but there are still people dying almost every day. Uh, The country is led by Petro Poroshenko, the man who kind of totally uh, identified himself with this war and and as the man who who stood stood up against Putin. Uh, But at the time, a lot of people were completely fed up with Poroshenko, who is a representative of your political class, of course, uh, oligarch himself fed up with the war, they wanted peace and lead a normal life and wanted Ukraine to become a, a, a modern European society. And that is exactly what Zelensky promised. Mm-hmm. What were the promises explicitly? If I was a Ukrainian and I had was studying who I should vote for at that time, what would I have been given? What were the reforms that really were going to stand out that Zelensky promised? Well, it, the thing was that he was very vague uh, in his political <laughs> program, so actually it was more it was more like uh, 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 I am uh, uh, like the the teacher and the president in in the TV series. And when they asked him about his political plan, they, 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 there wasn't any really. So then after when when you know people start, started to criticize this, he he, he published something, <laughs> uh, but it was really uh, just just a brochure full of nice slogans and uh, <laughs> without any. Any any concrete political points? So I think I think he 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 didn't actually know himself how he was going to do it. But he, there were two promises. He said, "I will get rid of corruption mm-hmm. in Ukraine. So I will I will finish finish off the old political elite, the corrupt political elite. And secondly, I will bring peace. But how this was to be brought about, he had no idea. As we know, um, his acting roots. I mean, he also has something in weirdly in common with Ronald Reagan there. You know, he has something in common with Trump in being known, uh, you know, as a TV personality in that way. What do you think the acting background gave to his oratory and how he delivered his addresses? It's very much man of the people, as you say, but that did connect. There was something about it that did connect with normal people. Yes, exactly. Yeah, this is a man. This is a man who's uh, been on the stage for thirty years almost, mm. and this is a man who knows exactly how to deliver a speech. Knows exactly what works, what doesn't. Has perfect timing and has natural charisma. Um, so, so I think he has everything to be to, to play this war leader in front of the screen. Uh, he uses it, uses it to its full effect because uh, we've seen a lot of his speeches, but uh, normal Ukrainians see him every day because every day he records a video and he puts it out on Instagram. Uh, and I think this is a huge comfort to a lot of uh, people in distress right now mm. that, that he's always there. He's he's, he's omnipresent in mm-hmm. in a way. He yeah. knows how to appear. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So the landslide victory does happen, as we know, with nearly 75% of the vote in spring 2019. What is happening before Putin starts speaking in public about launching a special military operation, which, as we know, ends up being the invasion? Zelensky has a couple of years. We have COVID as well. How does he deal with being a leader before we get the aggression from Russia again? Well, he gets himself in a lot of trouble because, like I said before, he didn't really have an an, an idea about how he's going to get rid of corruption. Um, uh, uh, After the presidential election, he then goes on to win the the parliamentary elections and his party, uh, uh, which uh, has the same name, Servant of the People, as the TV series, uh, then wins a majority in the Verkhovna Rada, which is the Ukrainian parliament. And the Ukrainian parliament only has one chamber, so... 
by winning an absolute majority, he could effectively do what, what, what he liked, pass any legislation he liked. But that didn't happen because uh, in, in, in the course of a few months, uh, about a quarter of his uh, delegates were actually in the pocket of the oligarchs and were not even voting for the laws that he was trying to pass. So <laughs> that kind of shows you how complicated things are or were in Ukraine. He immediately started to fire his, his own government, Yes, that's right. There's a series of dismissals, aren't there? And everything seems to be... It's chaotic in the sense that when he's getting his parliament together and the ministers, it seemed to be very, very quick and rather disorganised from your book. And then, say, you know, a few months later, they're all being laid off. (laughs) Yes, exactly. He's a very impatient man. So Mm. he wants something to to be done. And when he doesn't see any results, he immediately uh, fires uh, the man or woman in charge. And... um, yeah, that that has a very has actually detrimental effect on, on on his government, and at a certain point, it's even difficult for him to find people who are willing to kind of serve in his government because they they can they cannot be sure of their career. So this is a man who uh, I think he had he has very good intentions, honest intentions, mm-hmm. has ideals, but he uh, he didn't really know how to realize them, and he doesn't have a real understanding of how democratic society works. The thing is that, you know, democracy is based on institutions and not on people, I think. So there has to be some a, a, a balance between different powers in society, judicial power, for instance, parliamentary powers, executive powers, the government. So if you understand that, you will not fire the head of the prosecution office twice in the course of uh, two years, because you are damaging the institution of the the prosecution office, which which has to be independent. And and it it cannot be independent because uh, the person who's who's in charge is in danger of of, of dismissal. You know, it can can happen every week. So uh, another example is that um, uh, in in Ukraine doesn't have a a strictly presidential system like like France Mm -hmm. or, or, or the United States. Uh, so uh, the, the the government and the prime minister also has an important role. Uh, and in the Ukrainian tradition, there's always been, uh, uh, as to say, um, uh, some kind of some kind of uh, fight between the president and the prime minister, which is kind of uh, kind of keeps the president in check. Well, mm-hmm. if you look now at the government that he has installed, the prime minister that he has installed, Shmihal, uh, he, this is just a manager. This is not even a political figure. Mm-hmm. So in this sense, he uh, he doesn't really understand that it's not about him being an honest man and getting the job done, but it's about uh, developing democratic institutions in Ukraine, which is a process of many, many years or even generations mm-hmm. and, and, and not a pres- presidential term of five years. In your opinion do you think this is populism in action as someone comes in with ideals and yet they don't have the political backbone as such to carry those things through yes there are definitely populistic traits about him but it's not the kind of populism in the sense that he knows that he's actually kind of betraying the people or making promises he cannot fulfill i think he he generally believes that he can do it Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so it's, in, in, in a sense, he's, he's politically, he's, he was very naive. Mm-hmm. At this point, is he worrying about how he appeals to the wider world as well? Obviously, Ukraine needs a really strong bond with the USA. On that terrible term, the world stage, is mm-hmm. he really conscious of 
outside influence and how he needs to present himself to everybody before Putin starts? Um, I think, yeah, I think uh, before the war, you mean? Yes. Um, uh, yes, in the sense that he uh, uh, definitely realized that it was important to keep uh, to be good friends with the United States. And then we have, of course, this famous phone call <laughs> of Donald Trump, uh, in which he asks uh, him to start an investigation to the son of Joe Biden in mm -hmm. Ukraine. Uh, and then and this uh, this, this, this uh, telephone conversation was uh, later uh, published. So he was very angry about that because it really, it really made him look like a fool. So he was conscious in this sense, and he was actually rather proud. He also uh, wanted to present Ukraine as a modern sovereign country, which is, which is not going to be in the, inf the sphere of influence of, or, of either Russia or the West. Mm -hmm. right? Yes, it's very pushing and pulling, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the situation, and it seems to be a balancing act that maybe you can never get right between influence mm -hmm. and sovereignty, as you say. We've talked on this podcast a few times about strongman archetype in politics. Does Zelensky need to play the good guy as such against the strongman that is Putin? Does he need to be seen like that? Is it really important that he plays all those cards right to, on the world stage? Yes, of course, he needs to be seen like that. But it, it, you know, it's not it's not very difficult for him to be seen like that because the the, the differences are so big. Because mm -hmm. although we took, we've we've cr just criticised him for many things that he did wrong, uh, in the end, this is a man who cares about people, and this is an honest man, and this is somebody who's completely different from Putin who doesn't care about human life at all. So, in this sense, he is the good guy. So it's it, it's it's an easy role for him to play. How do you feel that he has coped? which is such a broad term, but with the last year in being put in that situation and having to be firm and having to put his message across to the Ukrainian people and the world for a whole year as the country is attacked. Well, I think you have to admire him for what he's done. You know, uh, we all remember the, the famous video he recorded on the second day of the war when actually Kiev itself was under attack and there were actually uh, Russian special forces roaming about the presidential palace. And he went out to say, I am here, I didn't flee. The president told the president is here with his people. So that was a really Churchillian moment for which you have to admire the man because he's, he's, he's terribly brave. I think a lot of people would have run mm. uh, in these kind of circumstances. And then he's also a man who really uh, has, has iron discipline and who works all day. He's always done. He's always done that throughout his career. And that also enables him to talk to uh, almost everyone on the planet. So I've, I've just read an interview with his uh, chief of staff, Andriy Yermak, who said that during the first weeks of the war, he was talking to 10, 10 world leaders a day on Skype. Wow. So there were 10 conversations, which also all had to be prepared. So it also took him about an hour to prepare such a call, video call. But he made mm -hmm. about 10 of these, talk, these conversations a day. I think he's still doing five of them on a daily basis. So this is a man who is uh, giving his life for Ukraine at the moment, you know, every hour he has. Absolutely. And we're talking about him as if he exists in a bubble in a way, and I know he has dismissed ministers, but who are his closest advisors at the moment who really do stay with him, if you see what I mean? Yeah, in, yeah in Ukraine, there's a lot of talk about this Andriy Yermak, who is now his chief of staff, mm -hmm. who's also being called the great, great cardinal, and he's kind of managed to kind of evict all competition uh, <laughs> in Zelensky's circle. And I think the rest of the people, they're all loyal managers who do what he wants. If you look, about, look at uh, Minister of Defense, Reznikov, 
who is uh, now in big trouble because of a huge corruption scandal at the Ministry of Defense. But Zelensky doesn't let him go because loyalty is one of the most important things for him. So when, once you're always friends and you're loyal to him, he will be loyal to you. The same goes for like the spin doctor, Podolyak, um, who is always there and always talking for him. So these are the people he surrounds himself. I just, yeah, I just mentioned, for instance, Michal, which is the prime minister, mm-hmm. who is uh, also actually not a politician, but but uh, a friend and, and a close ally. So he surrounds himself with people that he can trust, a very close-knit circle, mm-hmm. uh, to do the job. And I think uh, it works really well in, in war circumstances, maybe not so well uh, uh, d- during peacetime. Mm-hmm. Will, will he ever take off the green T-shirt or green sweatshirt? And what does it represent? Yeah, I think it's about time, don't you think? <laughs> I started, to be, a bit, I started to be a bit bored with them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's a symbol, isn't it? And what's of course, it's a, of? yeah. And it was, in a way, it was also smart because um, um, he knew that, that putting on a suit and tie was probably sending the wrong message. But he also realized that just putting on a, a uniform would r- look ridiculous. You know, he would look like uh, Muammar Gaddafi, or I don't know, I look look like a Saddam Hussein or a dictator. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. he kind of very, very smart, very smartly thought about how can I look a bit like military without putting on donning a uniform. Uh, so I think it, it worked really well. But... So last couple of questions: How modern a president is Zelensky? He's very modern in the sense that uh, uh, the way he uses media uh, and what then the way he's present in the media. Um, I'm not so sure that he's very modern in the sense that he understands what a modern democracy should look like. But I'm, I'm sure he wants to find out. So he's also a man, uh, he, he's not vain. Uh, he's not narcissist. He, it's not about himself. He's like a very dominant leader, but he's, it, 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 it's, it's not about uh, his own fulfillment. So um, I think he can learn. But if you look at the way he thinks a, a country should be run, I'm not, I think it's still deeply Ukrainian post-Soviet in a way, in, in the sense that it focuses on uh, a country needs good leaders. And if you have good people, then they will do the right things and then everything will get better, which is, of course, not the case, as we all know. <laughs> Don't bring us down yet. Um, Zelensky, can he defeat Putin? Yes, I think so. I think mm-hmm. in many ways he's already defeated Putin. And if, if we exaggerate, uh, he defeated Putin on the second day of the war. Because uh, if we kind of go back to what the war plan was of Vladimir Putin, it was uh, not written by the army, but written by the security service, the FSB. And the idea was basically that uh, Ukraine was such an uh, unstable state with such an unstable government that if they would invade with a big military force, they could easily topple the government. Zelensky would run uh, and a huge part of Ukrainian society would actually support uh, the Russian invaders. That was the idea that Putin had. And I think Zelensky proved him wrong on the second day of the war. The Ukrainian people have, pro- uh, have, have proven him wrong by, uh, you know, resisting uh, massively, by volunteering for the army, for fighting tenaciously. And, well, I don't know what the casualty rate of the Russian army is at, at the moment. I think the United States have said 200,000 killed or wounded. So, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, the question is really how long can Putin continue this war? If the West keeps supporting Ukraine with weapons and training, if the West can keep up military support, I don't think that, that Russia has a chance of winning, actually. An almost impossible question, but how do you see the future of Zelensky? Oh, dear. Um, 
And he promised before he got elected that he would do only one term of five years. After the first year, he said, well, I've discovered that I probably need two terms. Mm. So that would have put him in the presidential seat for 10 years. I think now, um, well, he's talked about the fact that he's very tired. You know, if you look at the man and the way he's aged uh, in the course of this year, mm-hmm. that is, it's, it's a terrible thing to see. Um, I think that uh, once he thinks he's achieved his goal, and that goal is now peace, I think uh, there's a good chance of him just, just leaving. Actually, he talks about that, he, like how he wants to sit on the beach and drink a beer. <laughs> Which is actually very, uh, very uh, interesting because all his friends always complained that when they were on the holiday together, he could never sit still. So everybody wanted to sit on the beach and he always had to do something. (laughs) Well, we'll take it with a pinch of salt, as we say. He might be near a beach, but probably exploring around, but still enjoying a sort of retirement. But he's a, he's a very active man, high energy man. But he's and he's only forty five. You know, he's just just become he's just turned forty five, which is uh, you know, if you come to think about it. It's incredible, it's, isn't it? It's incredible, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm older. <laughs> <laughs> what have I done in my life? <laughs> well, at least we're still here. Stephen Dierks, I could talk about this forever. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been really, really interesting. And Zelensky, a biography of Ukraine's war leader, is out now. And for those of you listening, there's a new edition of The Bunker every morning, so please do subscribe. And you can back us on Patreon. Just search Bunker Podcast Patreon for extra shows, goodies, merchandise and more from just £3 a month. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in the New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Sean Pattenden. The producers were Alex Reese and Jack Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with audio production by me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>